Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works and mental health and mental illness. With me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. So in our podcast, we keep coming back to the connection between our mind and our body. For example, anxiety isn't just thoughts. It's about what happens to our body when we're anxious, heart beating faster, sweating, adrenaline, etc. Another important body-mind interaction concerns our immune system, which helps us defend ourselves against infection. The immune system produces antibodies that fight infection and cells to fight viruses and cancer. And traditionally, we saw the immune system as something relevant to our body, not our mind. But today we're going to discuss the interactions between the immune system and the mind and the immune system's relationship with and effect on mood, depression, fatigue, and even the possible use of anti-inflammatory drugs to treat depression. Uh, Ian, let's start with an explanation. How, how does the immune system work? So the immune system itself, most mm. people think as the body's defence system against infection, virus, COVID, bacteria, meningococcus, something comes along, there's something that's got to protect the body and it has cells that either produce antibodies, bind onto those things and allow other cells to come on and gobble them up to kill the thing, or it has special cells for cancer and viruses, as you said, that are specially designed to protect them. Now, it's also coordinated. It talks to itself by releasing other chemicals called cytokines to coordinate this whole activity to turn it on when the virus is there and hopefully not kill you in the process because it causes you to have fever and lie down and feel terribly sick, and then to turn off while well, hopefully you're still alive but the virus is dead or the bacteria is dead, and then you recover. So it's a coordinated set of activities with chemical signaling, complex cells, etc., running around the body the whole time, back of your throat, if you're breathing in, or through your gut, if it's getting in through your gut, or if you cut yourself and it gets in through your skin, to mobilise in the body. Now, most people have thought about the immune system, therefore, as something that's operating in the physical body and the brain being outside of that. Now, a lot of medical science said the brain is outside of that. It's a special place. And it can't have this immune system activation, which we otherwise call inflammation, you know, when it's all activated and turned on, going on inside your head, that the mm. brain is spared. It's a special place. And there's a thing called the blood-brain barrier to create a special way that all those cells and all those chemicals can't get out of the bloodstream and affect your head. Now, I love medical dogma. This was medical dogma for hundreds of years till about 30 years ago, and people went, uh, I don't think that's true, actually. <laughs> actually, <laughs> And in fact, that brain thing seems to send out a whole lot of signals to the immune system. And then over time, people have worked out, actually, the brain's got its own intrinsic immune system. It's got its own intrinsic cells called microglial cells, which are little immune active cells actually in the brain. And it uses these same cytokine chemicals in some ways as basically signaling systems neurochemicals. So other neurochemicals we kind of know, like dopamine and serotonin and noradrenaline, those kind of things in the brain as signaling systems, chemical messengers. Actually, turns out these immune uh, cytokines, chemicals, also have a signaling function in the brain. And that actually the brain and the body are in constant discussion. And even some of these immune cells, which were said to never go into the brain, actually do go into the brain. Mm. And it's got, its own, it's got these own funny little cells running around, constantly changing brain cell connections. It turns out the brain is an immunologically very active place. Don't you love it when medicine is just totally wrong? It's been totally wrong for 700 years. Ah, have to rethink that. Now, the importance being... So, so 
kind of the, the, the nub of that is that the immune system works with the brain. So it, it's not a separate thing. It, it goes through the brain, which means that there might be effects um, Both on ways. how we think and how we feel and how we behave. Both ways. So the brain might be affecting your immune sponsor out in the rest of the body. Yep. And when the rest of the immune system's on in the body and producing all these very active chemicals, cytokines, and they're all swimming around in your blood, that might be affecting your brain as well. Now, we've known forever it must be the case because the behaviour of animals when they're sick changes. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, you're an animal too. When you're sick and you have a fever, you feel awful, you feel tired, you lie down, you want to go to sleep, you have a longer, slow way of sleep. You see, dogs are the best example of this. They get sick, they mm. lie down, and suddenly, oh, children are good too. They lie down, they get sick. When they're better, they hop up again. So actually, clearly, and you have no appetite and you feel but, awful. But I always thought that was just the effect of, you know, the, the sickness that, that I have. I, I didn't think it had anything particular to so do with So where is the sickness? Your behaviour just changed. Where's the sickness? So the sickness, I've got an infected finger, but maybe the brain knows that and it's saying you need to rest and get better, lie down. You need to not eat, it? you need to lie down, you need to go to sleep longer and you need to stay put mm. until you're well. Because actually that's called, that's called that's sickness called behaviour. Sickness behaviour. Yeah. Oh, we said it together. Oh, good. And so that's something that you see in all animals. It's stereotypical. It's not a learnt thing. It's not a not, We didn't decide to do it. Dogs do it. Mammals do it. They all do it. And if you inject them with these cytokine stuff artificially, guess what they do? They lie down, they behave like that, they stop eating. They sleep longer. So it's actually a stereotypic response, and it's, it's caused by the release of these chemicals, and it's caused by the release of those chemicals on the brain to change mm. the behaviour. Now, that's in dogs and other things. You can see the observable bit. In humans, guess what we say when we're exposed to such things? And I feel, um, well, I'm tired. Yeah. I need but to also, lie down. I lie down. Leave me alone. I want to go to sleep. Yeah. But then we also say... I don't feel so good. I feel miserable. Yeah. I feel miserable. And actually, you know what? My brain's kind of foggy. I can't think straight. I can't mm. concentrate. So people actually report the mood changes right. and the cognitive changes the dogs can't tell us about, but humans can in those situations. Because that's really interesting. So we can make people depressed or we can make people cognitively impaired by this kind of stuff. But that makes sense. I mean, adverse external effects – affect our mental health you lose your job you're more likely to feel down you might you know you might get depressed or you might just feel sad for a while and recover an adverse physical event i've got an illness my immune system is fighting it i can't do a lot of the things i want to do I, my mood goes down i feel sad a bit depressed i love it james you immediately go for the psychological it, explanation people don't wrong? think it hey it's wrong <laughs> Of course it's wrong. wrong. Yeah, because you can just you can actually just induce it. You can actually induce it in a dose response way by how much of these chemicals you inject into people. Huh? But you don't actually have, you don't well go back one step here. You don't yeah. actually have to have in a sense an awareness of an infection or a particular thing. So this has been done oh, I see. with with chemicals. These chemicals are also used in the treatment of cancer and other areas to treat these things. You can actually inject people with this stuff. They're not, they're not actually ill. They're just injected with the stuff. <gasps> Bang. Down they go. Down goes their behaviour and they, down goes their mood and off goes their concentration and whatever. So the causative element isn't simply a psychological reaction to the adversity. It's actually a chemical response okay. to exposure to high doses of these immune active chemicals. 
So maybe should we look at a few examples of, of how this can play out. Um, when I was young, it was called chronic fatigue syndrome. More recently, we've had long COVID. Are they just physical conditions or can that long-term fatigue and loss of energy triggered by infections also trigger, you know, depression and mood and, and cognitive disorders? So the second bit of the question, absolutely yes. In studies mm. I've been involved with half my life, following people from all sorts of infections, viral infections like glandular fever, bacterial infections, other unusual infections. Yes, when the immune system is turned on by any of those things mm. and produces these cytokines, these, these things that cause inflammation, then they are likely to precipitate depression and cognitive impairment. And in some people who are genetically susceptible, not all of us, it doesn't turn off, it continues. Now, then you said, is it physical? Well, see, I'd say the depression in that situation is physical. But as you know, yes. James, I'd say that all the time. <laughs> anyway, yes. I don't have this distinction between one and the other. A series of chemical changes have taken place in the brain which have resulted in that altered mood state, that altered cognitive state, that altered sleep-wake cycle, and it has persisted. Now, why it persists, why it doesn't turn off and go back to normal, and why it only happens in some people, not others, we think has to do with the genetics of the immune system but also your genetic vulnerability to developing depression or cognitive impairment. As individuals, we react differently. We are differentially vulnerable to these different kinds of environmental insults. So what are the implications of that for treatment? Okay, I've got chronic fatigue syndrome or I've got long COVID. Now that you know there may be that, that might affect my mood, I mean, is the implication of that that we come in and we try and treat the physical person, but we're also aware that there might be some mental health, um, some mental health effects that need to be assessed. So the first is not to get lost in an arbitrary physical versus mental. It's physical versus mental. Right, as I was doing. Felt as you did. You fell straight into that. I'm very surprised. <laughs> After all these episodes, you fell Damn straight it. into that. But both matter. So, again, the immune system normally recovers, okay? So as you track people, as we've done with post-infective fatigue and post-infective mood syndromes over a long period, every few months, a certain proportion of people do recover. So recovery is likely. It's, it's, ep it's likely the episode will end. So you don't want to make the situation worse <laughs> by becoming more inactive, by withdrawing more, or by not recognising the effect on mood. So sometimes that involves psychological therapy for the depression. Sometimes it involves behavioural therapy and around activity and sleep-wake cycles. Sometimes it will involve medication therapies, use of antidepressant therapies. In fact, there's great studies done in the cancer area where these chemicals are used or were used a lot in the past for treatment of giving people, guess what, antidepressants before they gave them the injection with the cytokine stuff. They didn't get depressed. <laughs> They actually got the antidepressant before it happened as a preventative measure, which I thought was fascinating kind of yep. um, uh, proof of principle in, in this kind of area. So, yeah, so looking at all the available treatments. Now, what tends to happen is people tend to deny it. Go, no, I'm not depressed. i got brain fog. i got no interest. i got no pleasure. I can't sleep straight. I feel awful, but I'm not depressed. Okay, well, sounds actually, a bit like they're depressed. <laughs> it sounds a bit like you're depressed. Yeah. But let's not get lost into it because it's been it's definitely been precipitated by the prior infection. Yeah. That's what that's what triggered it. What leads to an argument then endlessly, and this is going to happen in long COVID and everything else, it's going to be an argument about, oh, is the bug still there? In most of these situations, the bug has long gone, but the immune system has been set off on its own merry little way, releasing these chemicals, and in some way hasn't no returned to normal. And it's then 
big argument then. What's happened downstream? In what way has that affected the brain mm. to perpetuate the problem? How do we turn the thing off? We know what turned it on, but how do we turn it off? And turning it off may not, as we discussed many times, James, for many sets of psychological problems, may not be the same as what triggered it. You may have to engage in different strategies, psychological, behavioural, medical strategies to turn the problem off. But but that would be di- – okay, so say I broke my leg and I'm really depressed because I was about to get a rugby league contract, right? And that means I can't play for a year, I'm in plaster, everything's a hassle. So that could lead to depression, but without yes. this – but without this added – Yeah, chemical thing. Right. Yeah, would the, in the brain. Would the – would the strategies to help both people be different? Well, no, they may over, well they may well overlap. They may yeah. yeah. Depending on what happens now, in the first case, the broken leg kind of stuff. It depends if that's made you very inactive and you can't be physically active and you can't mm. sleep well and you've got socially isolated. There's a whole lot of consequences that may have happened, which you know are then perpetuating the problem. Yeah. So you can't do the same degree of physical activity. You've got to work out how to run your sleep-wake cycle. You've got to work out how to socialise. You've got to get back to work, whatever you can do, while you while waiting for your leg to allow you to resume things. In the, in the first case, in the post-infective case, it has led to two sets of issues. What common strategies, behavioural, psychological, antidepressant medication might help, but also it has led to a lot of interest in there. Are there other immune regulatory strategies that might help? If the immune system's still contributing to the problem, what could we do to try and moderate it? Do we need to do additional things to try and turn it off or somehow get it back to normal? Mm. Or at least survive until it spontaneously remits, turns itself off. But that, this is where then, leading into the part of your introduction, a lot of interest has arisen in, okay, do we need to use anti-inflammatory strategies? Do we need to start to use not antidepressants but things that target the immune system? Now, historically... We've used things like steroids, you know, things like cortisone, in fact, to dampen down immune responses. In fact, if you've ever taken prednisone, and I've taken a fair bit in my life for various things, it's a marvellously happy drug. (laughs) People often feel marvellously happy Mm. taking it for their arthritis or for their other inflammatory conditions or other things that have happened to them. So we know there are mood-altering effects of steroid drugs themselves, but that's a pretty dramatic way. We don't really want to do that for the immune system normally, although that's been used a lot in COVID, for acute COVID. It has led in the depression world to, okay, what about using other things like ibuprofen, if you like, or aspirin or other common anti-inflammatory drugs? Would that help? So lots of would it? Well, lots of trials have gone on. And sad to say, generally speaking, no. Now, small asterisk, except, (laughs) there have been exceptions, except where there is evidence that there is inflammation ongoing. So there are other markers in the blood and other markers in the body that the immune system is really still very quite active. So Mm. there are are other ways of measuring that in blood tests. And in those groups of people where uh, where those blood tests reveal that inflammation is still occurring, well, then some of these strategies have been effective. So not for everybody, but where there's evidence of ongoing inflammation, ongoing immune dysfunction, then targeting the immune system looks like a very interesting candidate in those situations. So, so, so I guess, well, this is interesting because, you know, when you have an adverse of, uh, event and you're at increased risk of anxiety or depression, right? So something freaky happening at work, your marriage breaking up, some outside stress, then your take-home advice has always been 
do pleasurable things, exercise, sunlight, sleep, all those things. Yes. With this, that kind of doesn't work as well, does it? Okay, I've got I've got an infection, it's causing me to be sick. All the I know now I'm possibly at increased risk of feeling depressed, but all those things that are normally the solution I can't do because I'm sick. Is that right? To some degree, yes. Mm. So to some degree of ongoing sickness behaviour, we discussing it earlier, really gets in the way. And there may be ongoing things. So a further extension of this immune stuff is sometimes the immune system just decides to attack your body for no really good idea, so-called autoimmune diseases. So antibodies can attack your thyroid gland. You can have something like psoriasis where your skin's being attacked by your own body or some sorts of arthritis that are mm. autoimmune. And this commonly occurs in many young women in particular are prone to autoimmune diseases. They've got the immune system being active. It's releasing these chemicals. They feel sick and they feel depressed a lot of the time. Then yep. part of the focus has to be on better treatment of the autoimmune con- condition. Realise it's not what you said. It's not simply a psychological response to having the problem. It's yep. actually being driven by the chemicals being released by having the illness itself poorly managed. Now, for a lot of things like arthritis and some other conditions, there are brand new medical treatments, monoclonal antibodies, or the new biologics as they're known, that target those diseases much better. And they turn the inflammation off, not just turn it down a little, they turn it off. Great, because they have a really big effect on things like depression and other psychological problems associated. People feel stacks better as a concept. So sometimes we've got better treatments. GPs, I mean, is it only you who know about that? Do GPs know about that? And can you say, you know, look, I've been listening to this podcast and I'm worried about the drugs that I'm on affecting my mood. Are there others? And will most GPs go, oh, yeah, I know all about that? Or they go, um... Now, I can't speak for most GPs. (laughs) Are these areas of specialised medicine? Yes. So this issue, these new anti-inflammatories, particularly in areas of rheumatology, some areas of neurology, and increasingly in my own area of psychiatry, some areas of dermatology. So they tend to be under control more of specialist doctors. Hmm. Should you ask the question of your GP or anyone else? Yes. And yes. you should ask the question of your rheumatologist or your dermatologist or any of the others. Is it possible that I'm getting the best? Because I've heard, I've heard of some random podcast, hmm. that it'd really be a good idea if I could turn this inflammation right off, not just down a little bit. But right off, because really, I feel rubbish a lot of the time, and I have trouble sleeping, and I have trouble doing stuff, and I'm, it's making me miserable. Are there better options for trying to turn the inflammation off, not just turning it down? And is this relevant to my depression? Is this now? One, of the, I'm going to speak on half. <laughs> this is going to get a bit um, territorial here. I'm going to speak mm. on behalf of psychiatrists. Psychiatrists actually are medical doctors. This may surprise some. They are. Yeah. And what a lot of them should be doing a lot of the time in partnership with GPs and other medical is actually those kind of medical assessments, is actually screening people for a number of these inflammatory conditions that might be contributing to treatment-resistant depression or depression, particularly in a lot of young women who otherwise get dismissed as just having emotional difficulties, psychological difficulties. Is this part of the problem that they may have a chronic inflammatory condition? Not just one precipitated by infection, but maybe one precipitated by autoimmune disease. Now, about 20 years ago, a whole bunch of new antibodies got discovered that were targeting the brain that people had no idea about. So in certain sorts of psychotic disorders and unusual mood disorders now, not only the common autoimmune diseases like attack the thyroid or attack the skin, but actually you now know ones that attack the brain directly. And we're finding new ones every year. So, you know, reminding your average psychiatrist, 
don't worry about beating up your GP, but just remind your average psychiatrist that they're a doctor too and they could order some blood tests and we could look into this a bit further is really important. So why I was so keen to do this episode, James, is to say to people, yeah, often there's other stuff going on which we didn't really know about after an infection, part of an autoimmune disease or one of these novel areas where we need to go and look a bit harder when it's unusual, it's atypical, it doesn't respond to the usual psychological strategies. Or as you said, I feel so damn sick. I can't do those things. Is there something else wrong, doctor? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the chemotherapy syndrome, isn't it? The 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 treatment in itself having effects that make you feel terrible. Chemotherapy does do exactly that. I'm glad you said that. That's a very good way of putting it, James. It's chemotherapy. If you've had chemotherapy and it kills a lot of cells, what happens if it kills a lot of cells? You cause an inflammatory response. The immune system reacts. It's supposed to do, kill the cancer, hopefully not kill you in the process. And you feel terrible. You get one of these stereotypic cells. And it's not the drug itself. It's killing all those cells and it's your own immune system then reacting to those cells. So a lot of people in chemotherapy have to turn down their own immune system so they don't kill themselves in the process. But they feel awful while they're having it. And that is an effect of those chemicals and the effects back on the brain and what it controls. So much underappreciated, James, and much under-discussed and an area of really considerable uh, research interest at the moment. You know, Mm. I think we should concede on this podcast, or I concede most days of the week, there's so much we don't really know. There is. And we made a whole lot of assumptions. We make assumptions all the time that we really understand stuff that we haven't really quite got a hold of. Or we've got it by the tail and that's we haven't really got it under control. When we started this podcast, I thought, you know stuff, I don't know it. It'll be really interesting for me. I'll learn lots of stuff. Uh, But sometimes it's good to know that um, you don't know everything. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, on this one. This one we should come back to regularly because the number of new antibodies being found every year Mm. and, and unusual autoimmune syndromes is rapidly increasing. New technologies, getting inside the brain in ways we couldn't before, and as importantly, new treatments, new therapies, which are immune-focused, not classically psychologically or classically antidepressant-focused. So takeouts for listeners. One, could this be me? Am I on drugs or do I have this sort of condition that could be having um, kind of unwanted and up until now unknown effects on on my mood and mental health. So step one, yeah? Yes. Are step the symptoms, two. that's symptoms, you know, tiredness, mm. low energy, you know, feeling sick, like that thing about having an acute viral illness. Yeah, I'm sick. Yes. Step two, what do I do about it? Would you suggest, well, obviously talk to your GP and don't be fobbed off and ask them some hard questions and quote quote Ian, write down some little quotes from the anonymously or, you know, I heard this mental health professor say, or you can even quote him if he doesn't mind. Um, but even before that, is it wise to do a bit of Googling? This is my condition. This is the medication. Type in that and mood and just see what you find and how reliable the sources are. So when you go in, you're not you're kind of armed with a bit of specific information. Is that oh, right yeah. Here? Look, yeah. doctors say they hate it, but the truth is they <laughs> love it. I have this thing from the National Institutes of Health from the United States. I've got this mm. thing from the NICE guidelines from the United Kingdom. I've got this thing from the Australian College of Psychology. You know, do you think this might be me? <laughs> because it sounds like me. Yeah. And should I be having blood tests to see whether I've got some chronic inflammatory condition, to see mm. whether my immune system is on that requires further investigation, doctor? To which the answer should be yes. 
Well, often, I mean, I've, I've done this at various times, said to my doctor, would it be a good idea if? And they usually say yes, um, don't they? And often you get suspicion. They weren't going to recommend that. But because I kind of said, would it be a good idea if we had a blood test or whatever, they kind of think, well, yeah. And if there is something, I don't want to be the one who refused them the blood test just in case. Is that kind of true? Yes, you're very, you're so polite, and that is such mm. a nice way to do it. Would it be a good idea, doctor, for me to have these tests? Just to reassure me that I'm, you know, and most doctors in Australia, pretty cooperative with all chaps, and it doesn't cost a fortune. Yeah, they're pretty cooperative. And I think if you've come to that conclusion yourself, everyone's better off. I mean, most doctors, for most depressive disorders would conduct a reasonable amount of screening. They'd look at your full blood count, make sure you're not anemic. They'd look at your thyroid gland to make sure you haven't got an underactive thyroid because historically they're two of the conditions that mimic depression, hypothyroidism mm. and anemia. Now you can add a whole other two hands of other things that we know about. Or if you've got, I must say, if you already know you've got an autoimmune disease, you've got something like psoriasis, you've got a skin condition, you've got some other condition that's been affecting you, and you said an important thing as well, James, you're on certain medications. Is there a chance that this medication, doctor, is contributing or is associated with inflammatory kind of responses? Could this be mm. part of the explanation? So it is absolutely the case in this area. It's why we do these podcasts and that marvellous book I might mention, James, Minding Your Mind. That's why we do it. The more information you have when you go in to see a doctor, the better care you'll get. Yeah. This is, a, all- this is a reality of the medical system. And, and don't think, as I think some people do, Look, I have to be on this medication for this part of my body. Unfortunately, it means I'm a bit tired, but, you know, the doctor said I have to be on it and that's it. That might be the case. You might have to be on it. There might not be an alternative. But on the other hand, that is valid. Like to say this is a side effect and it's bad. I don't like it. What can we do? You can always ask the question. Oh, and are there alternatives? Absolutely, are there alternatives? Mm. I mean, if you don't, hate to say it, if you don't complain, if you don't tell us, we won't do nothing. We won't spontaneously cover the territory. The nature of our medical system is you need to put the information in Mm. to get a range of options back. And the answer might be like chemotherapy. No, suck it up. You're going to feel terrible, but it's hopefully will kill your cancer. It might be that, or it might be something else. Well, it, it may not be. It may not be just suck it up. I'm going to tell you earlier on about people who are using antidepressants, for example, to prevent these effects. They actively treat the things. In fact, I love working mm. with cancer doctors. Cancer doctors are great people. Because I never meet one, but yes, uh, James. You know what? I have a great friend in the United States, and her physician says, "Look, you're going to live a long time." You're going to get cancer. That's not the question. The question is, are you going to survive the treatment? That's the actual question, which I think is great. And I would add to that, are you going to survive the mental health effects of the treatment? Because as Mm. you said, it's pretty nasty. Now, that isn't just psychological. So antidepressants, and I've worked with doctors in this area trying to find better treatments for fatigue associated with chemotherapy, for depression associated with chemotherapy, trying to work out ways that people's quality of life is as good as it can be, despite Mm. the fact that we are poisoning them at the same time. with treatments to save their life. So cancer doctors are actually really good about this. People being treated for multiple sclerosis are good about this. Rheumatologists now dealing with a lot of joint rheumatoid arthritis and other sorts of problems that are really historically hard to treat. The treatments are so much better. But these are the questions you need to ask. Okay, I want the best treatment with the least side effects, including the effects on my thinking, concentration and mood. And just finally, I mean, this is, I I assume, rare, but is it the case that this... 
interaction between the immune system and medication can sometimes lead to major mood and even psychotic disorders. Yes. Mm. Yes. So in a range of the psychotic disorders, there are certainly certain antibodies in the brain attacking certain key receptors in the brain that undoubtedly result rarely in very unusual psychotic disorders. Yes. So when people haven't got well on conventional treatments, when they've had lots of adverse effects, side effects from conventional treatments, we've got to go, hang on a second, is there something else going on which we didn't know about 20 years ago? And we have found a lot more in the last five years, in fact, in the last 12 months than we knew before. We need to be vigilant. We need to be looking. So going back and asking is fine. Please do. Please annoy your doctor. (laughs) Please annoy your doctor sooner rather than later with, here's what's really going on. Are there better options? Yeah, great. Great. Because you are a whole person. You are not a body and a separate mind. Um, Any questions or comments, please suggest further topics for us. Do get in touch at mindingyourmind2, numeral 2, at gmail.com. And our podcast is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help's available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. You can just Google them or you can call Lifeline on 131114 if you want to know more about some of the things we discuss the book. Minding Your Mind by Ian and me is available.